Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Rebecca Siegel is a licensed prescriber of medical marijuana in New York State, a psychiatrist and on staff with Amen Clinics, and the author of a new book I found to be fascinating, The Brain on Cannabis, What You Should Know About Recreational and Medical Marijuana. She is a graduate of Duke University and Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She did her residency in adult psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. And she's a member of the American Psychiatric Association, as well as the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And in 2004, she was selected to win the Women in Psychiatry Award from the Mount Sinai Department of Psychiatry. Now, bear with us on today's show. Dr. Siegel is actually hearing impaired and wears a hearing aid. So the audio with her equipment is a little bit echoed, but bear with us. It's a great show and an important one. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I'm going to start at a high level. There are primarily two uses medical and recreational when it comes to marijuana. Let's start with the medical. What does the science say about who can benefit and what conditions can marijuana help? So let's start there. Well, we first have to go back and start with how marijuana is not federally legal. It's legalized by state. So that is a very wide, it leaves a wide gamut. So each state that is medically legal can choose the conditions that they will accept as, you know, that a doctor can certify a patient to receive a medical cannabis card. So I am a certified prescriber in New York State. And so the the conditions that New York State will allow are things like cancer and chemo uh, therapy and problems with chemo, things like ALS or Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis, seizure disorders, chronic pain, PTSD, neuropathy, things like that. What's not on that list, interestingly, is anxiety or insomnia. That's a New York state. On the flip side, there's recreational use. And so I know this is a hard question. It's hard to generalize, but who should use recreationally and who should stay far away from using? I sort of go to the who should stay away first. <laughs> first, we said, we like to say that nobody um, under the, in their mid-20s or under should be smoking or vaping or using cannabis in any way. That's true to my aim and clinic roots, that brain is still developing and maturing until you're in your mid-20s. And we want to give your brain every chance of developing in the best way possible. We promote staying away from all substances of abuse, not just cannabis, but alcohol and nicotine and things like that. Let, let's build off of that because I think that's an important point because look, I, well, I'm 47 now. When I was under 25, that's when I did all the stupid experimentation that you know teenagers and young 20s do and, and marijuana was part of that. and. There is a lot of interesting science around the developing 
brain. I always thought it was a teenage brain, but you say, and this is interesting that the developing, that the brain is still continuing to develop until age 25. And so we, we should really talk about that, that marijuana does affect the developing teenage brain up until, and we should broaden that up until age 25. And so can we talk about the risks associated to the developing brain if you're 25 and under and you are using marijuana recreationally? So absolutely. So I sort of categorize them as the short-term risks and the longer-term risks. So in my mind, shorter-term risks, you know, like acute use or immediate use is what can it do to the certain areas of the brain that, you know, when you just, when you smoke or vape, well, it can absolutely impact your frontal lobes, right? Which are the decision-making parts of the brain, the impulse control, the um, executive functioning parts of the brain. That's very important. Things like the cerebellum, which can, that can affect coordination. So you should not drive if you're, you know, under the influence of any type of substance, right? If your cerebellum is impacted. If things like the hippocampus, that's the area of learning and memory. So that, that can also be impacted by acute and longer-term cannabis use. Well, these are all very important considerations. In the book, you referenced the study from King's College, which showed that those who smoke marijuana daily were three times more likely to be diagnosed with psychosis. And those who used, now I, this was fascinating, and those who used high-potency marijuana daily increase their odds of developing psychosis by nearly five times. And, and here's the kicker you, you talk about in the book, the study classified high potency as 10% or higher. And so for context in the nineties, when I was doing all sorts of stupid things as a teenager, potency was typically 4%. Today it is typically 18 to 30%. And the most popular varieties in Colorado dispensaries are 17 to 28%. Wow. So I'm coming at this as a parent, as someone who's concerned about the mental health epidemic, are we setting ourselves up? You know, marijuana is opening up everyone. It is what it is. It, it's, it's happening, but are we setting ourselves up for an even worse mental health epidemic if high potency significantly increases the chances of developing psychosis and literally everything that we're legalizing is high potency. To me, that's like a huge problem. It's scary. And our young people don't understand this. That's the other thing. When we have some context to it, you know, can hopefully understand it a little bit better. But the other major problem is that cannabis is federally illegal. What that means is that there, it is very hard to get any kind of research studies, you know, any real research studies done that physicians can get behind. You know, we want evidence-based medicine. We want well-designed studies that you can say this, you know, this is what it's showing. But, you know, the studies that have been done and the King's, you know, the King's uh, College study was a good one. And it definitely opens up that huge issue of how potent things are now and how much the risk of psychosis is increased. Absolutely. But if cannabis is considered a schedule one controlled substance, that putting it on, you know, that's, there's no acceptable 
medical use and there's high potential for abuse. So that is the, that's the conundrum that we have that Malcolm Gladwell brings up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about, can, can you build off, you mentioned Gladwell, you talk about the book. Could, could you build off of that and, and explain what Gladwell's point of view on this? Well, I mean, he does first talk about how much more potent marijuana today is versus what it was in the 60s and 70s and 80s, 80s when I was growing up. That also, right, that this, that this potency, right, can definitely cause all kinds of issues and that because it's illegal, it's very hard to get anyone to do good research. So should it be legalized? And would that be allow it to be studied in a better way? It's complicated. It's very complicated. It is. And, you know, in some states, it is a state, it, it, they are making it legal. In New York, where we live, one thing I've noticed is the amount of people smoking marijuana in the park at all hours. We walk Everywhere you go. My wife and I walk to work or, you know, eight, 9 AM and someone's smoking marijuana and just like, whoa. Well, our children are being exposed to it walking down the streets too. And so in trying to understand this, it, to, to me, what's scary is the connection to mental health and psychosis. And I only speak anecdotally from experience. I, I, I had a close friend where. I grew up and it started with marijuana, led to something else, led to more serious things and it led to a serious mental illness and eventually, uh, he took his own life. And I have other friends, this is all anecdotal, where marijuana became a way of life and motivation just really sunk, cognition sunk and the rest is history. Myths, you know, is it a gateway drug? Can you be addicted? Can, can you become addicted? Can it decrease motivation? We've covered mental illness, like we'll tackle all these. What's your take on those? Absolutely. So my take is that I, the way I address it in the book is I say it's a myth of harmlessness and a myth of harmfulness, right? So is cannabis all harmful or is cannabis completely harmless? And I don't fall in either camp. I sort of, I try to straddle the middle you know, to present the opinions about it. But definitely, you know, this is what Malcolm Gladwell says, and this is what the King's College study says, and this is what Dr. Melanie Chanup says, that there is definitely um, an increased risk of kids who start earlier smoking, smoking high-potency cannabis, smoking daily, chronic users. They may have the risk of an initial first episode of psychosis two to six years sooner than they may have had. Or on the flip side, that's the myth of that it is a gateway drug, right? That, that it can cause psychosis and then maybe lead to harder types of drugs. But then there's the, the opposite side that is it just a correlation? And that's causation. Marijuana causes psychosis. Well, correlation is why are kids smoking? Are they smoking because their peers are smoking? Are they smoking because they're self-medicating? But are they self-medicating psychosis beginnings? I'm not sure. Maybe anxiety. I've had in my clinical experience, and that's mostly where I'm coming from as a clinical psychiatrist. And I am an adult and a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And I've had many patients come to me just to say that, you know, 
it helps me sleep and I feel refreshed and I don't need the Ambien or the Trazodone or the Lunesta, the sleep aids. And when I don't have problems other than, you know, other than the insomnia or that it helps my anxiety or that I've even heard that it may help ADD and focus and concentration, which is mind boggling to me, but I've heard people say that. And so I'm, you know, this is the culmin. This book is the culmination of about four and a half, five years of me being in this industry and this cannabis as a clinician. And it has been an incredible and interesting and exciting learning experience for me, you know, as, like hearing what people say. I've heard people come to me and say that, that, or their parents come to me and say that they became psychotic from one, one episode of either smoking or vaping. That is scary. I've also had people come to me and say, this has helped me get off of opiates. And so it's very complicated and I walk a very fine line. So is it safe to say that there's usage under 25, which probably not safe because of the developing brain and there's usage over 25 and we've covered medical use. If I'm over 25, I'm an adult. And could we talk about usage and what is safe? What is recommended? What is too much? How should we, if, if, if it brings us joy, if it helps with sleep, how do we find that balance in our life? How do you think about that? Absolutely. So, I mean, the way I see that among the biggest risks, like we discussed in harm to the developing brain, but also the, the potential risk of psychosis, vaping or smoking can harm the lungs, you know, and especially in a pandemic, you don't want to be, you know, doing any more damage to your lungs. That's going to, that will harm you and make things worse. You want to avoid that. So if you have asthma, or if you have OPD, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you want to stay away from cannabis modes of delivery like vaping or smoking, right? The other thing is the vaping crisis. I don't know that anyone even remembers that anymore. It was pre-pandemic. It was around October of 2019 when, you know, there were mostly younger people who were getting very sick with a pneumonia-like disease you know, disease and some even died. And it was hypothesized to be because of certain chemical components in the, the formulation of the e-cigarettes and beeping, you know, cannabis cigarettes called vitamin E acetate. But then the pandemic hit and, and everything, and the world turned on its head and, and the beeping crisis was kind of forgotten about. But that's a, a very big thing. But the other things that I think about are something new that's coming out, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. And I'm not sure if you've heard of that. With chronic users of cannabis, that they have a um, cyclic vomiting syndrome that is awful. And right, and it's mostly chronic, heavy, high-potency users that they will have you know, cycles of vomiting that will not stop for days. And they will get dehydrated and they'll have horrible, you know, things happen to them where they end up back in the hospital needing to be rehydrated and things like that. So, you know, this is, these are horrible things that can happen. And I've, I've actually seen it, seen this happen. And 
look, there are men who use, there are women who use. Does marijuana affect men and women differently? The research that I've come across is that the, the, the rates of psychiatric comorbidities, that means, you know, people who have more than one psychiatric illness is, you know, higher in people who are using cannabis. So men or women, that is, you know, that's what they're finding. But also men may be more likely to have any psychiatric disorder or um, antisocial personality type of disorders, whereas women are more likely to have mood or anxiety disorders. And but in terms of how it affects the brain, same way. As far as I'm aware, as far as I'm aware, the more research definitely needs to be done. And that is the overall, um, you know, what I want to say that there just needs to be more research done so that people can understand it better. Physicians can get behind it or not get behind it, and you know, and also that it can be done, that it can be safer. You know, I only, and I only recommend medical use. I do not recommend right. recreational use for anybody. You know, because when you're going to a dispensary and you hope that you, you know, what they say you're getting, you're actually getting. And you can choose, you know, different uh, ratios of, you know, THC, the psychoactive component versus CBD, the, you know, the non-psychoactive component. You know, and that that type of balance can be much more helpful for some people, right? Rather than really very high, you know, ratios of, of THC to CBD, I definitely do not recommend that for anybody. Right, and in terms of you know, you talk about in the book, so there, there's the why behind why is it beneficial? Why does it? help take the edge off? Why does it help with anxiety? Why does it help with pain management? And it comes back to the endocannabinoid system, which we've talked about. But to your point, if you're really trying to support your endocannabinoid system, you don't need the THC, right? It's an interesting thought because if you're thinking about full spectrum and the entourage effect and and the, the actual cannabis plant, THC and CBD occur together in marijuana. And so some people would say that full spectrum means some THC. But you, you can still, I think there's a school of thought, you can still largely get the benefits of the plant and, and people define full spectrum as actually, you know, full spectrum have, but minus the THC. <laughs> Are very, I, very feel, I think that CBD is an incredible, you know, has incredible impact on the brain and the body. And it is so, I mean, more, again, more research needs to be done. We need to uh, you know, really research into its anti-inflammatory properties, its pain-relieving properties, its anti-cancer potential properties. There are so many things that, you know, this it, it might do, but we don't have the research. So if you could wave your magic wand and magically have research happen at the finest medical institutions in the world. What research would you be interested in in seeing? Well, there's a lot of research that is going on. And there's a lot of research that's going on in Israel, for one. That was actually where a lot of the um, initial discoveries into cannabis were, you know, came about. And I think I would definitely want to know 
you know, gateway issues. You know, will this lead to psychosis or is it more complicated than that? There, you know, there's genetics, there's environment, right? Genetics, meaning if you have a family member with psychosis or any type of psychiatric illness, you know, do you want to be aware and really be advised and, and warned and, you know, to proceed with caution? But this is, you, maybe we need more warning labels, you know, like Alex Berenson says, who, who also writes about, you know, like, um, along with Malcolm Gladwell and Nellie Chana, you know, the, the real like, exercising caution when it comes to this. Because so much harm can come that I, and I agree. Was that, the, is there a specific study in Israel or is that the study that they're doing? No, I'm just saying that's what I would like to happen. Got it. And what are they studying in Israel? Well, they're studying lots of different, um, like the chemovars of CBD and THC and to see what type of things that they can do, you know, aside from, you know, THC or just CBD, CBG. So, you know, there's many, as we all know, you know, different types that might do very different things. And if, but we, if we don't have the research, we won't know. And so in terms of research, there's a lot of it in the book. What, what was the most surprising research you came across while writing where you just said, wow. Honestly, nothing has been surprising. It's where it's all been a surprise. It's, I, I am the most unlikely person to have ever written a book about this. And it came to me and basically hit me over the head with a frying pan that I had to do this. And I realized that there was a real, just, I knew nothing. And people were coming to me asking me as a physician. And I didn't know what to say. And I, you know, and I said, okay, I've got to learn more about this. It's not taught in medical schools. You know, I went long ago to medical school, but it's not, I don't think it's even taught there now. Maybe one course, if that. And that's, that needs to change. You know, we need to have more just understanding of other, not just cannabis study, but, you know, other, you know, more natural options and more, you know, integrative medicine and things like that, that are so rare these days still in medical schools and residencies. And I got none of it where when I trained. So I'm curious, how were you hit over the head that you had to write the book? Well, so I had a patient ask me about it and I really knew nothing. And, and, you know, she said it had changed her life and could I help her? Well, so that was one. And then I actually, it was very fortuitous. I joined Amen Clinic right around the same time. And, and I knew Daniel Amen's per, you know, uh, position on it, but I realized there was a medical cannabis conference at UCLA at the same time that I was going to be, be trained uh, in, I don't know if you know, you know, our, our, the special kind of imaging we do spec scans at Aiden Clinic, right? Well, so I, I went to UCLA and, you know, was bowled over by, you know, all the, the presenters who were talking about just the different things that cannabis could do and also, you know, the harm and the harm and benefit. And I came down to, to, to Amen and I met, I met Daniel Amen and I said, I have to write a book about this. <laughs> and he said, okay, you know, go write a treatment. And I said, I don't know how to do that. He said, well, maybe you want to Google it. So I went back to the hotel that night, wrote it out, showed it to him. 
And he said, this is fascinating and this needs to be done. And the rest is my journey. I love it. So, you know, as a kid, I remember the commercial in the eighties, this is your brain and, you know, they got the egg and then this is your brain on drugs and the frying pan. It, it was probably one of the most successful PSAs. Although I think we failed, we lost the drug war, but, uh, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was great entertainment, if you will. What is, can you talk about, like, if you were to say, this is your brain and this is your brain on marijuana, could you talk a little bit more about if you were to do a scan? Like for someone who's chronically using, like, let's talk about what that brain looks like. Absolutely. I mean, what we might see right. with chronic use and for years and years of high potency marijuana, definitely changes with decreased blood flow. That's what a spec scan measures. Decreased blood flow in the areas of your frontal lobes, right? That's the decision-making and impulse control areas and um, executive functioning, organizing, planning, things like that, concentration, right? So that area may, may be severely impacted. Also, the the learning and memory areas of the brain, the temporal lobes, where the, um, you know, the hippocampus and the, um, I think that, that area where you memory and learning, that can be severely impacted as well, right? And, and then the, 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 the back of the brain where the cerebellum is, which is coordination and movement that also may be very impacted with years and years of, of chronic cannabis use. The amygdala, that's the emotional center of the brain, right? That might also be very impacted with hallucinations and perceptual changes, you know, hallucinations or severe anxiety, things like that. So there's tremendous impact. And how do you define chronic? Is that daily? Is that weekly? Well, it's hard, to, it's hard to quantify because, again, the research really hasn't been done in a systematic way. Got it. And so, you know, look, we, we're all on a journey and we try to meet people where they are. And maybe there's someone listening who's saying to themselves, you know what, I, I, I smoke, maybe I smoke too much or I just, I'm sold. I, I want to, I want to stop but maybe I suffer from anxiety maybe it helps me sleep. And we, we talk a lot about, you know, healthy swaps on my buddy green. And so for example, in food, you know, if I used to eat Reese's peanut butter cups, maybe grab an unreal peanut butter cup or Justin's peanut cup, peanut butter cup, it's organic, better ingredients. Like, okay, I can do that. So if someone listening and they want to make a swap, if marijuana helps take the edge off, helps them with anxiety, what's something they can do starting today that's a healthier swap? This is a wonderful question and one that I talk about every day with my patients coming to Amy Clinic. We talk about healthy lifestyle changes, things like exercise. Exercise is a tremendous pro thing for the brain. It can absolutely help you deal with anxiety. It can get you out of your head. And it gets the blood flowing. And that is a very good thing for, for people who have brains that may have been impacted by substances of abuse or concussions or any you know, things like that. Other types of psychiatric disorders. Exercise is huge. Good nutrition and diet. That's an, another huge one. Right. Assessing, right. If you're diving for the Reese's pieces, and you can, right, you, you actually go to a more natural type of thing like, peanut butter, exactly. Cutting out the sugar, cutting, you know, be having a, an approach of moderation. That's what I say. You know, 
taking things, you know, cautious and, and using moderation. Sleep habits, so important. Absolutely. Trying to use um, things like mindfulness, and meditation, and self-care. These are all tremendous options for people that they, you know, they may not have any idea. And how do I know if I have a problem? How do I know if a family member has a problem? You know, is it I, you know, obviously if you're using daily or, 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 or maybe not, how, how do I know if I have a problem or someone I love has a problem? How do you think about that? Well, I think about it kind of as the way, like I would say, if it's alcohol abuse, you know, we have, we call it the cage questionnaire. Have you tried to cut down? You know, has it, been, has it caused you problems in your relationships or your family or your, you know, do you need to, do you feel like you need to, you know, constantly, if you're doing this for years and you need to constantly increase, that's called dependence when your body gets used to something, right? And, and you need more to achieve that desired effect. You know, these are all things that we think about with chronic abuse or dependence. And it's a complicated issue because many say, well, that's cannabis. You can't be dependent. You can't be addicted. But I'm not so sure I believe that. I've definitely heard older people, younger people say to me, no, I definitely feel withdrawal symptoms when I don't smoke. And I've been doing it a lot. I feel uh, depressed and anxious and irritable, you know, when I stop. You know, so that that, that seems quite real to me <laughs> from, from a clinical perspective that you can definitely develop dependence on the substance. Yeah. And if it becomes something that you must have, like it's a must have to do X or Y, you know, in the same way, like I must have a drink before I go to the party. I can't just go to the party and have the drink. I need to drink before I go to the party. Or if I must smoke before I go to the party or before I go to work or this thing, it becomes, uh, I, that's how I, at least I think I've thought about this. It's if it becomes a must have, you, you have a problem. Well, my kids would say pregame. I used to say that all the time. I love, I had a very good time in high school and college in my twenties. Now I have no interest whatsoever in getting high. And I think the last time I, I smoked marijuana was like in 2000, 2000, I think. Yeah. 2000 or 2001. So it's been a quite a long time and I have absolutely zero interest. You definitely have to. So me as a mother and me as a psychiatrist, you gotta, you gotta know your kids. You know, if it's, I mean, it's not necessarily just kids or teens or 20 somethings, but you need to see and be present, you know, for what's going on with your kids to see if, you know, there are changes in behaviors or if they seem, um, you know, that they're isolating or they seem depressed or they seem more anxious or their grades slipping. You know, God, you have to, take an interest in what's going on, right? And be present. And the pandemic just flipped everything on its head. My, my youngest daughter, who just turned 16, she didn't go to school for a year and a half. She oh my was God. Home, she was home, right? Virtually online learning, which actually she did fine with, but there were many people who did not do fine with it and caused all kinds of issues of self-medicating and anxiety and depression and social anxiety. These are all very real things and you don't want kids or adults self-medicating. You want to address this therapy is a wonderful way. Supplements like GABA and 
5-HTP, things like that, you know, saffron, all the things that we recommended at Amen Clinic, you know, that, that has been a tremendous addition to my arsenal for, uh, as a psychiatrist. I don't just revert to medication, you know, it's a, it's a incredibly interesting, you know, opportunity that I have. At so in closing, if there's one message you want to get out there to our audience, what is that message? What do you want to leave people with? Brain health is so important that your brain is developing until your mid twenties. You really want to keep your brain when you're 20 and 40 and 60 and 80, and maybe even a hundred don't want to be self-medicating. Are there potential uses for cannabis? Maybe, but I say as a physician, more research needs to be done in order to make that, that I can safely you know, offer it to my patients. Amazing, Rebecca, thank you so much. I agree. Thank you, Joseph.